Uh, We'll read of a temple here in our sermon text as well. So turning over in our Bibles uh, to the book of Acts, chapter 21. The book of Acts 21. And we're going we're gonna, to uh, begin at verse 27, but just for the length of it, uh, we're going to begin reading at chapter 22. We're going to come back to 21, verse 27, uh, in just a moment here, but go to 22 at verse number 3. Let's just read this morning uh, Paul's defense before the crowd of Jews in the temple. And at verse 3, then, of Acts 22, here's what he says to them. I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia. But brought up in this city, Jerusalem, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers. So he's a Pharisee, or was a Pharisee. Being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. As the, and as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness... Uh, from them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. So he's reminding them all, or he's telling them what happened, what we read in Acts chapter number 9, uh, way back when. And here's what that story said. And here's Paul recounting it again, verse 6. And uh, uh, as I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me, this is Paul now saying, now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I heard, uh, uh, and I said, What shall I do, Lord? The Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth, for you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he, the Lord Jesus, said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And to these words, all of God's people say, Amen. Well, another of the apostles, Peter, tells us in 1 Peter chapter 3 at verse 15, Always be ready. Always be ready. 
to give a defense to any who would ask you the reason for your hope and do so with gentleness and self-control. Always be ready to give a defense, an apology. We'll come to that in just a bit here. An apology, a, a, a public legal defense for the reason that we hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here in our text, Acts chapter 21 and 22, Paul illustrates for us this very truth. And he puts into practice this very principle, that we as believers are always to be ready to defend not just our own personal faith, our subjective experience of faith, but the faith. Be ever ready to give a defense. Now, we're different than Paul, for sure. Uh, We live in a different culture, that's obvious. We live in a different time, a different place. All the circumstances of your and my life, we here as a body of believers, uh, it couldn't be any different than the Apostle Paul. But the principle still applies to us, that we are always to be ready to give a defense for the hope that lies within us. And Paul illustrates for us this morning here at the end of chapter 21, so go back there, 21 at verse 27, we're going to pick up, and all the way through this part of 22 where he's defending the faith. He's defending the call that Jesus Christ has given to him. He's defending the reality that the Christians are not defiling the law and the temple as they are falsely being accused of. No, as Paul goes on to say in the book of Romans, for example, no, we uphold the law. We uphold the law. Christ is the end of it, and we serve him, and we we find it in its right relation to the Lord and, and to us. But here, he's defending the faith. And this is the first of Paul's several defenses. He defends himself, first of all, here in these chapters, before the Jews, his fellow countrymen, And then we're going to see later on, he begins to defend himself before all the various public apparatus of the Roman Empire, the governor, uh, and so forth. So notice there, him at the temple, verse 27 of our uh, chapter 21. He's at the temple, and uh, just to summarize that, but you can glance down with me beginning at verse 27. The outline has some little bullet points there to kind of guide you through what's going on. And uh, they're there in the temple because the church in Jerusalem has told Paul to take with him four other men who were under a Nazarite vow. And a Nazarite vow was part of the Old Testament where you would take a vow for a set period of time. It was usually about a seven-day period of purification uh, to, to shave your hair, to go to the temple, and on day three and day seven, you would undergo ritual purification. It was a way of devoting yourself to the Lord for some purpose and some task. And the, and, and, and the Jews who did not believe were accusing the Christian church of of not abiding by the law. And now Paul is back in Jerusalem, and James and the elders are telling him, now, this is going to be crazy. This is going to be an outrageous scandal to them that you're here because they're hearing that you're telling Gentiles in other parts of the empire where there are also synagogues, the Gentiles should no longer associate with the synagogues. They should no longer follow the laws of God. They're they're hearing this, and they're, they're spreading these lies and these these false, uh, these rumors and these, these false understandings. So go and pay for these four men, go to the temple, show them that you're not against the law, 
that you are uh, there. Now, we have to understand that what Paul is doing is uh, he's not trying to atone for sins, and those four brothers were not trying to follow the sacrificial system anymore because Christ has died once and for all. No, these are, uh, these are uh, adiaphora, these are indifferent things, giving a vow to God and cutting your hair and, and undergoing some purification. Uh, this was something as a way of showing that to the Jews become a Jew, as Paul would say, to win them to Christ. And so they're there. And on the last day of purification, there are some Jews from Asia. This is the region where Paul has just been on his three missionary journeys the, the past many years. They stirred up the crowds. And they laid their hands on Paul, as verse 27 says. And they were making the false accusations that, that, that he was against. Notice verse 28. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere. I always tell the kids at home, don't say always, don't say never, uh, don't say everyone everywhere. I mean, once you say that, I, I know you're not telling the truth. Whenever you say, you know, you never do this, you always do that. Come on. Really? So this is a bit of hyperbole, isn't it? This is the man who is teaching the people and the, uh, 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 everyone, everywhere, against the people, the Jewish people, and against the law, and against this place, the temple. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. Why? They were saying that because they saw Paul with Trophimus, the Ephesian, walking around the city. Well, lo and behold, there's Paul in the temple. He must have brought this, Jew, uh, this Gentile with him too. He's defiled. He's defiled the temple. This is just like against Stephen back in chapter number uh, 6 and 7, where they were accusing him of being against this temple and against our laws and against our customs. And Stephen stood up and he gave that amazing address that amazing sermon tracing the entire history of the Old Testament, how it all pointed to Jesus Christ. But here they are doing it again. First, they dragged one of the temple notice. They closed the gates. Why would they do that? Kids, if you're inside of a big building, and let's say there's like a big door, a big gate, uh, and there's some other kids in there playing with you, let's say you're, you guys are goofing off and whatever, and they kick you out and they close the door. What are they saying to you? They kick you out and they close the door behind you. What are they saying? You're not welcome here. You don't belong here. They're saying that to Paul. He's defiled this place. He's preaching against the customs. He's preaching against our traditions. He's going against everything that we believe. He's brought an unclean Gentile into our holy place. Kick him out. He's literally excommunicated. The doors shut. The gates are shut behind him. Verse 31, they were seeking to kill him. If you remember the stories where Paul was traveling through Asia Minor and Greece, uh, that this is exactly what they were trying to do. They were trace, ch- chasing him down. Uh, they, were, they were stirring up the crowds. And they, just, they, they wanted nothing more than to put him to death, to end his voice in their people's ears. Now, ironically, this is what's interesting, ironically, notice, verses 31 and following, ironically, Paul is saved by an unclean Gentile. The tribune of the cohort, this is the leader of a thousand soldiers, 
This was the Feast of Pentecost, and uh, the Romans had learned by hard experience that over the many decades and the many generations of, over which they ruled this region, they learned that when there were festivals and feasts and Jews, male Jews across the empire were required three times a year, the law said, to come back to the temple and to offer sacrifice and do worship and so forth. They knew that that's usually when there were uh, great uh, stirrings up of the Jewish people to revolt, to incite uh, uh, insurrections, to fight back against the Romans. And so the Romans learned, well, you know, we've got to prepare this. And so they planned, they, they basically sent more police to the town. They would send more soldiers. And so they, they had a fortress, in fact, uh, the Antonia Fortress that was attached to the temple, the northwest corner of it. Uh, and they, they all ha- were housed there, they lived there. And they were available when they were needed to put down and to quell riots. So to save Paul... From the accusations of defiling the temple with a Gentile, a Gentile who's there in the temple saves him from them. How? By arresting him, binding him with two chains, notice. Isn't it interesting here? Uh, we've been seeing throughout the book of Acts, and I've been saying to you so many times before, that we see the hand, the invisible hand of God, we call that his providence, the invisible hand of God leading and guiding and directing every single step of the way of the apostolic church. And we see the leading of the Holy Spirit, we saw especially last Sunday, where Paul was compelled by the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem to be arrested. And that we said that not just the good stuff, but we call the quote-unquote bad stuff. It all comes from God. That God has a purpose and a plan. That God works together everything for good for those who are his beloved and his called people. Amen? He's arrested by a, by a Roman. He's put into two chains. And we might think, well, this is a tragedy. You know, he should have listened to those other Christians who said, don't go to Jerusalem and be arrested. No, God was going to use an unclean Roman, unclean soldiers, Gentile soldiers, to arrest and to bind. And we even see there in the story that they prepared to whip him with 39 lashes to get the truth out of him. God does this sometimes, doesn't he? Yea, though I walk through, what? What was that again? The valley of the shadow of death. Did David pray there, yea, though I walk above it? I tunnel underneath it? I go around it? No. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And then what does he say in, the, in, the, in that Psalm 23? Then, then what does he say? Thou art with me. You are with me, Lord. That's what we see here. That's what we see here. Sometimes God does this, doesn't he? he? He uses wickedness and even wicked people for a holy purpose. We can't fully grasp that. We don't, really, we, we don't fully make sense of all that. We think, well, you know, these, these, these pagans that, that rule over us, these pagans that are, that are, that are in, our, in, our, in our own state, you know, these pagans, if, you know, if we don't get out of here, church ain't going to survive. Don't you think God is doing something? In our own time and place? 
Don't we think that God can, if God can use the most wicked people to do the most wicked thing ever, to crucify the Son of God, don't we believe that God has the power and the wisdom to orchestrate his will and purpose where we live right here, our city, our region, our state? Now we got to get out of here, though. It's, you know, the grass is greener over there. Grass is greener. I talked to somebody this week, you know. Uh, I, I was doing an uh, interview on a podcast and one of the, with Peter Bell, one of our former interns. And his, uh, his uh, co-host uh, is moving to Idaho. And I said, you Californian, you know. Come on, no one's laughing at my joke. You know, you Californian, you know, all you Californians. I'm a Californian, right? Uh, all you Californians moving up to Idaho. You know, Coeur d'Alene, Idaho? Are you kidding me? Come on now. Come on, what's there? You know, it's like the little finger of Idaho. There's nothing there. What are you doing? The Lord needs you here. The Lord needs you here. God can use wickedness for his holy purpose, and we have to believe that. We have to trust that. And so we see that with Paul here. We see it with Paul here. Now, he requests then, uh, as he's being dragged up the steps into this fortress to, to keep him safe, they want to kill him, so they arrest him, they put him into chains, they lead him up, they're actually carrying his body, and, uh, and, and this, uh, this tribune, he, he thinks that he's this Egyptian insurrectionist. You read that there in the, the end of chapter 21, verse 37. May I say something to you? May I say something to you? Now, he, up to this point, they haven't interacted. They haven't interacted. And this, this tribune, it's interesting, he, he, he turns, as Luke describes the story, and, and he says, Genoskes Helleniste, do you speak Greek? Greek was the lingua franca of, of the ancient world, and even Romans on the eastern part of the empire had to learn Greek. And so uh, he thought this was just another Jew who spoke Aramaic. You wouldn't understand the proceedings of what's going on. But he says, you know Greek? And so Paul then begins to speak to him in Greek, uh, that he is, uh, 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 the tribune says, well, aren't you, I thought you were the Egyptian that stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 men of the assassins out in the wilderness. And Josephus, a Roman, a Jewish Roman historian at the very same time as the New Testament, he actually writes about that very same insurrection. So we, we see another one of those things where the New Testament is very accurate in its historical uh, understanding. And so he, he thinks he's this assassin who led a revolt, this Egyptian, uh, against uh, uh, the Roman Empire in the wilderness. But he says, no, I'm a Jew. I'm from Tarsus in Cilicia. That's a Roman province. A citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And so he gives him permission, and Paul stands on the steps. He motions his hand. That was a great you know, Roman rhetorical, uh, oratorical thing. He would raise your hand to get the attention of the people. We might dim the lights, turn them off and on these days, right, to ring a little cowbell to get people's attention. But they would raise their hands to get attention. And he begins to speak to them. It says here, the Hebrew language, he spoke in Aramaic. That was the language of the Jews. He spoke in Aramaic to them. So that's where Paul's at at the temple. And you see, as he, he begins to make his defense, he makes his defense here. Uh, uh, this is uh, uh, the Greek term apologia, which comes into English as an apology. But not, uh, I'm sorry, apology. This is a legal defense. A technical legal defense of what's going on and why he is saying what he's saying. And he recounts his pre-conversion. Notice that in verses 3 and 5, uh, 3 through 5. 
And what he's saying there is that the law is impotent, powerless. I was born in Tarsus, in Cilicia. I was brought up in Jerusalem. I was educated by Gamaliel in the strict manner of the law. We saw Gamaliel all the way back in the the beginning of the story of Acts. He was probably the most well-known, the highest educated, the most sought-after teacher of the law in the first century. And Paul just happened to grow up with him. His parents sent him from Tarsus and Cilicia down to Jerusalem to learn the law from the greatest teacher of the law of the era. And I was educated by Gamaliel in the strict manner of the law. What does that mean? In the strict manner of the law. How serious did Paul take the Old Testament? You know, serious as a heart attack, as my dad used to say. As serious as he possibly can take it. Look at a couple texts real quick. Look at what he says in Galatians 1. Just to press home this point that Paul is describing his pre-conversion as a man who was utterly dedicated to the law of the Old Testament. He's saying that in defense of the Jews who are saying he's not taking the law seriously. No, Paul did take it very seriously, and we'll see that in various passages. Notice in Galatians 1, uh, at verse number uh, look, at, look at verse 13. He says, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And, now he gives an auto, this autobiographical statement, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age. He was the valedictorian, if there was one. He was the highest guy in class. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Paul took the law as serious as you possibly could take it as a first century Jew. Now look at Philippians. He says something similar. But he begins in his letters, he says that, but he also begins to say something else here in in Philippians. Something about the law and its power, its ability to do what Paul thought it was able to do. So he says in Philippians chapter number 3, he, he says that, uh, ver, uh, verse 3 at the end, he says that we're to have no confidence in the flesh. No confidence in the flesh, in our own earthly efforts. Though, now he goes back and sort of autobiographically says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. He's not saying, he's not contradicting himself there. And he's not saying that I, as the Apostle Paul, you know, I'm living a life way higher than you as a spiritual Christian. No, what he's saying is that if it's possible to take any credit in this life for following all of God's laws, you know, I'm the guy to stand up and say, I did it. He's like the Frank Sinatra of his age. You know, I did it my way, right? He would be the guy to say that. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. He's not saying this so that we would follow that example. No, he's saying that in self-deprecation. He's describing what he thought of himself in the past. And then he gives examples. Circumcised on the eighth day. Why is that important? That's what God said to do, right? Of the people of Israel. I'm not a Gentile. Of the tribe of Benjamin. A Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. 
We've seen, we saw in the Gospel of Mark, uh, in our Mark sermons a while back, there were two great categories of Jews. There were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees took the law utterly serious, and right, they, they began to make what they called a fence around it. Uh, keep the Sabbath day holy. They didn't want to violate the Sabbath day, so they began to make a little uh, set of rules about the Sabbath day. You can only take a certain amount of steps. You can only carry this. You can only go that far from your house, etc., etc., so that they wouldn't get even close to breaking the commandments. That's how zealous they were. So as to the law, a Pharisee, literally one who's cut off and separated, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Blameless. Then he goes on to say, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Go back to Romans 3. Romans 3, just a couple of quick verses there. Verse 19 and 20. Romans 3. After describing and, uh, and uh, observing and exposing humanity's sin, both Jew and Gentile, he says now, verse number 19, We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. The Jews, especially, who had the law. But he also says the Gentiles, because they had a law of their conscience. So everyone under the law, meaning every human being, whatever the the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Why? So that every mouth may be stopped. We begin to see in that, in that little verse, Paul begins to say, the law really wasn't what, it, what I thought it was all cracked up to be. It was never meant by itself to bring me righteousness. So that, what the, what, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world be held accountable to God. The law as a purpose was meant to bring people to account before God. Why? For by the work of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. No human being, by works of the law, can stand before God and be declared uh, uh, forgiven or forgive, uh, uh, sinless and approved. No one can be declared righteous. Why? Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So he's defending himself, but he's also saying, he also wants to say the law was impotent. The law was powerless. So what's the hope? What hope could there be? If every mouth is stopped and every single human being is held to account before God as sinner, what hope is there? Paul tells the Galatians that everybody who relies on works of the law are under a curse. Every human being who tries to to do it their way, whatever way that is, philosophy, religion, works, obedience, whatever it might be, you're under a curse. Why? Because the Bible says that in the Old Testament. Cursing is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. And then he goes on to say this. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. For it's written, Cursed is everyone who's hanged upon a tree. The law is impotent powerless. The law shows us our sins. 
When God says all throughout his word and even our own conscience knows, love your neighbor as yourself, love God above all things, that law only serves to condemn us. But Christ has redeemed us from that curse. One hymn says it like this, let us love and sing and wonder. Let us praise the Savior's name. He has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. I love that hymn. Let us love and sing and wonder. Let us praise the Savior's name. He has hushed the law's loud thunder. He's quenched Mount Sinai's flame. That's what Christ has done. And so he's saying in defense of the Jews uh, that, that he was raised and, and he lived and he was trained in accordance with the law. But that law cannot save in and of itself. The law cannot save in and of itself. Christian, this morning, Christian, let me address you. Are you saved right now? Are you saved right now? Because you, well, yes, you are. Christian, yes, you are saved. But are you saved right now because you are better than the person sitting next to you? Are you saved right now because you've done just a little bit more than the average Christian? Are you any more holy in and of yourself by nature as a human being? Are you more holy than your neighbor who can care less about Jesus Christ? Is there anything in you that God saw, well, you know, there's a lot of darkness in that neighborhood, but there's a little spark right there. If you're not a believer this morning, You have to know that there's nothing that you can do in yourself. There's nothing that you can offer to God that will make you better or will distinguish you or make God love you more than someone else. There's nothing that you can do. The only thing you can bring to God, you've probably heard this before, but all that you can bring to God is the sin that makes Christ necessary. That's all you can bring to God. And so we sing, and so we celebrate in wonderful hymns. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. The law is impotent, and Paul's pre-conversion demonstrated that. But then he shows us the invincibility of Christ here in his actual conversion. Verse 6 and following, he says that he saw a great light from heaven, verse 6. Again, he says that he fell to the ground, he heard a voice. And that voice was saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Using his Hebrew name, his Jewish name. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now notice that. He's been persecuting whom? Or he had, at that point in Acts 9, whom was he persecuting? Christians. Stephen was dead because of him. He had a letter in his hand to go to Damascus, to go to the synagogues and, and smoke out and snuff out the Christians, the Jewish Christians. But Jesus, when he addresses Saul, Paul, he says, why are you persecuting me? When Christians are persecuted, it's Christ. If they persecuted me, Jesus said, surely they will persecute you. The servant is not greater than his master. If they hated me, if they hate you, know that they hated me first, Jesus says in the Gospel of John. 
A great light from heaven. That's what we call a theophany, an appearance of God. God dwells, as the scriptures say to us over and over again, God dwells in unapproachable light. No man can see him and live. And so a great light from heaven that blinds his human eyes. And all he can do is hear a voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And notice his answer. This is amazing. Who are you, Lord? Why did Paul, or why did Saul, respond that way to the voice that he heard? He couldn't see. All he could hear was this voice. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why did he say, who are you, Lord? Paul's a Jew, right? He knows his Old Testament pretty good, I would think so. In the Old Testament, when great light appears, sometimes in the form of fire by night, right? Cloud by day, fire by night, that that sort of stuff. The fire that fell upon Mount Sinai, the fire that fell upon the tabernacle, the fire that fell upon the temple, and so forth. When, When that happens, who appears? God, the Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah appears. He did not know that this was Jesus of Nazareth yet. But he knew that what had happened to him was God, the Lord, the God of the Israelites. I am who I am. He knew that he was appearing to him just as he appeared to Moses. How did Moses know it was God? What did he see when he saw that bush? What did he see in Exodus 3 on the mountain? What did he see? A bush that was burning with fire, but what? Wasn't consumed. And he falls on his feet, takes his sandals off, falls on his face and worships God. Who are you, Lord? And he identifies himself. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. What shall I do, Lord? Notice. He doesn't know who he is yet. He calls him Lord. Then he hears who he is and he calls him again Lord. He's converted on the spot. Now, notice this as well. Paul, or Saul, he calls him Lord. Kurios, God, the Lord of Israel. What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord identifies himself, notice, by his human nature, Jesus of Nazareth. Who is the Son of God? Who is Jesus? Well, there's the person of Christ. There's the person But he has two natures after the incarnation. He has a divine nature. He is the Lord. He has a human nature. He is Jesus of Nazareth. And we see both of those here, those natures, in this one person. It's the same person speaking, the same person revealing himself. But it's amazing that he reveals himself as Jesus of Nazareth, although he's been addressed as Lord. And kurios is the Greek word that is used to translate the Lord in the Old Testament. That's who he sees. That's who he hears. What shall I do? What shall I do? Now, I can remember the very night in which I was brought to Jesus Christ. I remember the very moment, like it was yesterday, when I came to Jesus Christ for the first time in true faith. I remember that moment like I would never forget it. 
And some of us, too, can remember the, the exact day, the time, the moment that we came to Jesus Christ. Like Saul, converted on the spot. Others of us here, praise the Lord, like our children, have never known a day outside of the grace of Jesus Christ. Some of us are here, like myself, and we think, you know, if it wasn't for that time and place and that message that I heard and that thing that God said to me, I don't even know where I'd be right now. I surely wouldn't be here. Would I even be alive? But then we have others who say, thank God I don't know that. Thank God I've only always been in the bosom of the church. I've always known Jesus Christ. I've always known that I belong to him, body, soul, life, and death, and that I'm his and he's mine. But it's the same. I want you to know this. This is the same invincible grace of Jesus Christ, though. Sometimes we want to glorify the, the instantaneous, dramatic conversion. And we want to downplay the fact that we have kids, we baptize our children as babies, we teach them the Heidelberg Catechism, the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, the Ten Commandments. They know the gospel, they know the faith in their very infancy, as Paul told Timothy. You've known the scriptures from your infancy. And we, we, and we downplay that. That's not miraculous stuff. Yeah, that's mundane, it's ordinary, it's boring. Oh, if I could just have a conversion like yours. It's the same Christ who saves, it's, and it's his same invincible grace, his unconquerable grace, his sovereign grace that saves our children, that saves the oldest converts. It's the same. Whether you're Paul, whether you're Timothy, it's the same grace. So he speaks here, does the Lord, of of himself as uh, he is the God of Israel. He's the God of Israel. What shall I do? What shall I do? So again, notice Paul, you know, Paul is illustrating here, he's applying to us. uh, Really, what 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 is the human problem? What's the human condition? And again, we can as... Uh, with certain attitudes and, and certain sorts of expectations as Christians. You know, well, you know, the problem with people today is, and we fill in the blank, you know, it's a particular sin, a particular pattern of life, a particular identity, a particular way they vote even, uh, too much partying, too much this, too much that. That's not humanity's predicament. That's just a symptom of, of, of a much greater problem. Like Saul, the human problem is that the human will not submit to Jesus Christ. They will not submit to God. They want it their way. Now, he reveals himself here as Jesus, as the Lord. Paul, Saul calls him that, and he never rebukes him for saying that. And we know from the Old Testament that only the Lord could save. So Jesus is saying here that he's the Savior. I am Jesus of Nazareth. He's the remedy. The human problem is sin. Jesus is the remedy. The human problem is that we will not bow our knees because we are stubborn in our sins. We refuse to love God and love neighbor as self. We love ourselves more. We worship ourselves as God. 
That's our human problem, and Jesus Christ came to free us from that. To free us from ourselves, to free us from our sins, to free us from the law, to free us from judgment, the judgment of God. That's why he came. So his pre-conversion, his conversion, and then his commission, quickly. Verse 12, uh, down to the end. We'll come back to it next, uh, next Sunday, Lord willing. We'll come back, but just notice his commission. Uh, he recounts how Ananias was there uh, in Damascus. Uh, remember the story back in Acts 9, how did Ananias know how to, fall, uh, how to find Saul? Uh, you'll go to a street called Straight, and you'll find a man who is praying, who is praying. And so he, he, he says to Saul, does Ananias, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will. Notice, again, he's equating the God of our fathers. Who's that? Who's the God of our fathers? The Lord, right? The God who revealed himself to Abraham, Father Abraham. The God of our fathers appointed you. That God of our fathers is Jesus. To know his will, to see the righteous one. That's a messianic title in the prophecy of, uh, uh, of Isaiah. Uh, and, to, and, to, and to have a voice, to hear a voice from his mouth. Verse 14. For you will be a witness. Here's here's what the will of God was, the God of our fathers, was to make Saul a witness to him, uh, uh, to everyone, of what you have seen and heard. Back in chapter 1, this was the commission to the entirety of the church, right? To the apostles, first of all. Jesus said, you are my witnesses, first in Jerusalem, then in Judea, then to Samaria, then to the very ends of the earth. That's Acts 1, verse 8. And then in chapter number 9, the Lord revealed himself to Paul or Saul, and he said that you are going to be my witness. And in chapter number 13, uh, where Saul and Barnabas were preaching, uh, they'd quote the Old Testament that says that you will be my witnesses of themselves. He embraced that call and that commission. You will be my witness to, him, uh, uh, to me, uh, of me, to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And so he says, rise, be baptized, wash away your sins, calling on his name. I won't comment on that. Uh, I encourage you to go onto our YouTube page or sermon audio page. And uh, the last couple of months we've been in our second service uh, explaining and d- diving into the theology of the sacraments. What is baptism? What does it do? How does it... Uh, how does it fulfill this verse? You know, what does it mean that we are baptized to wash away sins? Well, I would encourage you to go back and listen. I fell into a trance, verse 17. And this is interesting. I saw him saying to me. Isn't that just an interesting way of, of, of describing it? I saw him saying to me. It's like in the book of Revelation. John sees something and he turns to see, but then he hears. He's, this is a vision. Make haste. Get out of Jerusalem, verse 18. Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And on that, the riot, they go nuts. They go crazy. We'll come back to that next Lord's Day. We follow the law. Here's here's Paul's defense. As he describes his pre-conversion, the law is impotent to save. His conversion, the power of Christ to save and his commission to bring that power of Christ to save to the Gentiles too. We follow the law, he is saying, because we follow what the law is all about. Christ is the telos, the end, the goal, Romans 10.4, of the law. 
Jesus of Nazareth is the invincible Savior of the Old Testament who frees us from the law's tyranny. But he also sets us free from ourselves to actually serve God according to his law, to love him and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And he sends this news of an invincible Savior who frees from the law and who frees us to serve. He sends Paul and he sends his church with this news to all the world. If that wasn't true, you wouldn't be here today. You and I are the fruit of that. And there are people here from all, all countries of the world. And we would never have heard the gospel in Africa or in Asia or our forefathers, our foremothers in Africa, Asia, uh, Latin America, or, or even in North America, unless Paul was sent to the Gentiles and unless they sent missionaries and the gospel was sent out to the world. Now you and I, you and I, as I mentioned at the beginning, have always got to be ready to give a defense. But the good news to you is that you don't have to be a trained rabbi like Paul to do this. You don't have to have that title before your name, doctor, to do this. You don't have to go to seminary for this or graduate school or go to a university to study these things to be able to give a defense. No, you and I are called always to give a defense, to know the Christ who saves us and to know what he saves us from. That's what Paul is saying here. Do you know those two things today? Do you know that you are saved from your sins by Jesus Christ? Then you can defend the faith. The Lord calls you and I to be salt and light, to be witnesses, to be defenders, to be promoters, to be spreaders of a seed. He calls us to defend the faith to people in our lives who need to hear this. You cannot save yourself according to whatever works you're trying to do it by. Only Jesus Christ can save you. And here's why. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord. We bless you and praise you for the gospel of Jesus Christ that frees us from the law's tyranny over our lives and it saves us from our sins. And it frees us to love you and to love our neighbor as self. We ask now, Lord, that you would assure us of this wonderful truth as we come to the table of the Lord, that we are free and that we are saved and that we belong to you. And so send us out by your Holy Spirit to be bold, to be uh, definitive in our witness and in our testimony of the grace of Jesus Christ to give a defense for the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. We ask it all in Jesus' name and all of God's people say, Amen. If you turn on the order of service sheet once again, we're going to sing. There's a song printed out for you there. Uh, there is a Redeemer, Jesus, God's own Son. Let's stand up and sing those four verses. <laughs>